it, let's see it getting closer, what's going on, turning it up now, alright, if I come up here, that sound better, welcome to the Good Courage Podcast, this is Jay Gamlin. Today's podcast is going to be just a little bit different. We're going to just look at one book in our sacred stories, the book of Jonah, and talk about the problem that happens when we get so focused on something as being history that we miss it being parable. But first, let's take a moment here and have a little moment of gratitude. Today, I'm thankful for my dad. My dad was a wonderful man. He uh, was a pastor, but started his life as a professor and a Fulbright scholar out of Duke. He had his PhD by the time he was 24. He was a really driven guy. Unlike me, who took me five years to finish college, five years to finish seminary, I just was always getting onto other ideas. And while I was living in Germany, my dad and I would uh, we would uh, FaceTime each other, Zoom each other across the world, and we would sit and talk about life and faith and our our evolving sense of the divine and how we were growing and what we thought God was doing and whom we thought God was. And it just makes me thankful I had somebody like that in my life. I'm wondering if you have somebody like that in your life, somebody that you can sit and ask the big questions. And... Uh, ponder what is happening and maybe getting into the deep spiritual weeds like me and my dad did. If you don't, I hope you find someone. If you have that person, how about giving them a text and saying thanks? Well, here's to my dad. Love you. So today I want to talk a little bit about Jonah. Now why I'm doing this is uh, to, to, to prod that question again about what happens when we get so stuck in our heads that something has to be historical, that it can't be true. Uh, what if something is meant to be taken as a story and uh, instead we are so caught up in needing to prove something happened that we miss the whole point of the story to begin with? And today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at Jonah and we're going to kind of walk through the story together um, and I want to us to put it onto our little heads to think of this as a beautiful parable, um, uh, a beautiful myth that tells us something about ourselves, something about the divine, something about the world we live, and how all three of these things interconnect. So, uh, yeah, so let's take a listen and let's get started. All right, good courage, friends. Grab your Bibles or your phones, and we're going to be looking at an, uh, a story out of the Hebrew Bible um, that is typically called Jonah. And we're just going to kind of walk through the whole story. It's a very, very short story. Let me see. There are a total of, what, four chapters. And a chapter here is not like a chapter in a book. A chapter in the Bible is much, much shorter. And so it, it just kind of basically four parts to this story. And and we're going to just uh, just break it down a little bit and maybe have a little fun learning from what this beautiful myth has to tell us about God and about people 
and about the universe and about forgiveness and love. And I think you'll find that this story ends with a question that I think we're all supposed to answer. So let's just start here from the very top. Um, so let's just start with the name Jonah. The Jonah uh, means in the Hebrew dove or pigeon. Now, um, what I have as a note here that I, I had from a long time ago is that it is the dove that was considered like the whiner or the complainer of the animals, according to sort of Hebrew, um, the Hebrew lexicon, the Hebrew um, mythology. If you think about it, you know, like what does a dove or a pigeon sound like? It's kind of like, you know, it has this sort of like whiny kind of sound to it. Um, there's not a whole lot more in uh, doves in scripture except the, probably the big one that you're thinking of, which comes from another beautiful myth, uh, a myth from that was borrowed from the Babylonians, the myth of Gilgamesh, where it um, where we remember that um, we we think of the dove that was sent out from Noah and the ark that brought back the branches. But here's something interesting: the initial story. Uh, God in uh, Noah uh, it, from the giant boat um, that he builds to save himself from the great floods sends out a raven and it's the raven that is actually first traveling to and fro on the earth looking and waiting for things to dry up now eventually Noah does send out the dove and it comes back first and it has nothing it comes back a second time and it brings back an olive leaf so that they know that plants are thriving again somewhere. And then when he sends it out a third time, it says it never comes back. So go figure. Maybe it's like, I'm out of here. I probably would be too if I was on a giant boat with a bunch of, I don't know, pythons, whatever it is. <laughs> anyway, we let's just uh, bend ourselves away then. But those are the main areas that we think about doves. Doves show up a couple times in um, the Psalms as metaphors of living, uh, living up in the rocks like rock pigeons do and and kind of living out in the wilderness as rock pigeons do. Um, but but I think what's good here to note is that the first thing I think that we're trying to get a clue from about Jonah, it, it's already going to tell us a little bit about who Jonah is, that Jonah is the whiner or the complainer. Now, Jonah does appear in scripture in another uh, story that's meant to be much more of an historical story. It comes from Second. Kings and Second Kings fourteen twenty five, where it talks about during one of the reigns of Jeroboam the second, a, a king, um, which was during the time of the Assyrians. Uh, the Assyrian Empire has been uh, famously represented as being a pretty nasty, awful empire, uh, known for very cruelly and uh, with uh, great. Um, bloodthirsty trauma attacking people and cutting off all the heads of people and putting them in the center of the city and and sacking and bloodthirsty and they, so they're just kind of at this time consider the worst of the worst now you might want to say that well since Jonah shows up somewhere else in the Bible that he must be an, an historical person I'm not going to argue that with you I'm not going to argue that Jonah uh, that there wasn't a prophet of, named Jonah during the time of Jeroboam, during uh, the Assyrian rule. What I want to say is that I think maybe the people who wrote this parable pulled Jonah out as their 
chosen prophet to tell this myth because it was during the Assyrian Empire. So it had more to do with picking a prophet during the correct time than it was actually a story of Jonah. Because as we're going to see in this story, this is not a story about history. This is a story about how God loves and forgives even the worst of the worst, the Assyrians. So I believe they picked this one little person out just to put historical context. It says that Jonah is the son of, and the word is Amitai, which means faithful and supportive one. So there's sort of this sense of Jonah this whiner, the son of a faithful and supportive one, which, you know, makes me think about a lot of parents who have to deal with whiny kids. Um, I find that a funny little thing. So uh, Amitai, that's the only time we see Amitai's name show up. It's the only time it's used, which again might be a little bit of a clue that maybe it's not a name, but rather than a clue in telling you something about Jonah, that Jonah is the offspring of the one who supports and the one who is faithful to Jonah, um, even when uh, Jonah is not faithful to that one. So we let's look here at the beginning of the story. So it starts off really fun. It starts in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to the dove, the complainer, the son of the faithful, supportive one. And the word says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But... Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. So what I love. So if you think about the Mediterranean Sea, if you want to pause this and look at a picture of the Mediterranean Sea, you can do that. And we will just hang out here for a second and uh, just kind of hang out for you. Okay, so maybe you've got a picture of it in front of you now. Now you see the Mediterranean Sea. Good. Go. So Israel and um, Assyria are located way out there on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Israel is sort of smack dab in the center of that butt end of the Mediterranean Sea. And Assyria is sort of uh, east of and north of that a bit. Maybe sort of think like Iraq, Iran, Syria, that kind of whole area up there is sort of where the Assyrian Empire was. Now this empire threatened um, the northern kingdom um, for years before they finally just conquered and took over um, again in a very bloody way so that so that uh, people you know really hated the Assyrians because of what sort of awful things they did to people um, but if you look on the other end if you go all the way out there towards uh, the very western tip of the Mediterranean Sea all the way out there you get Gibraltar and Spain and Cadiz uh, this is where they think Tarshish was. Tarshish, uh, we're not exactly sure where it was. The, the, the scholars debate, but what they do know is they think that they basically saying is that it's the last city before you fall off the edge of the earth. So I love this, how it starts. It's like, so God says, go east to Nineveh, to the great city, and and preach against their terrible works. And Jonah says, nope, jumps onto a boat and heads west, the exact opposite direction, all the way out to Spain, like as far as he could go to get away from it. So the first thing we can say about Jonah is that Jonah is probably the worst prophet in the Bible. He's awful. He stinks. He's the worst. And we're going to see more and more towards that and about that and about him as we go on. So he gets on a boat and, and heads for Tarshish. 
So he went down to a place called Joppa, which was a, sea, uh, a seaport city, and he found a ship. And now uh, the, the thing that we have to think now about this ship is uh, seafaring trade and people who lived on the Mediterranean Sea, it was a very, very dangerous, dangerous um, profession. It was very easy to be thrown overboard, to be shipwrecked, to die. And so ships, as they would travel from port to port, they would have to restock their crews with people from all over the Mediterranean. So inside any of these ships, you would find a wide variety of uh, cultures, a wide variety of religions. You would, you would like, uh, it would be like its own little United Nations where all these different kind of people are represented. So it says that he gets onto this ship bound for Tarshish and he paid his fare and he went on board and he just wanted to run away from God. And so it says then that God sends a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship was going to break up. And uh, it says all the tailors were shaking with fear and each one cried out to, to their own God. So again, kind of representing the, the, the many different lives and cultures that are on the ship, they all cried out to different gods. And they even threw their cargo overboard to try to lighten the ship to keep it bobbing along the top rather than sinking. And it says that uh, Jonah had gone below deck and fell asleep. And the captain came down to him and said, how, how is it that you can sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe God will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And then, and so all the sailors, um, they what they decide to do is they're like, okay, we've got to figure out um, which one God is angry with so that we'll know uh, uh, who's to blame for all this happening to us. And so it says they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked Jonah, so who is responsible for making all this trouble? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? So they get really nosy really fast about who Jonah is, what he's supposed to be doing, what God this Jonah is supposed to follow, and, uh, and what people. And so Jonah says, well, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the one, the I am, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So the one who created all things. It says that this terrified the sailors and said, well, what did you do? Uh, and, and, the, and the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, well, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Now, what I love about this is they don't immediately go to punish Jonah. They say to Jonah, you tell us what we're supposed to do. See, it's very clear that the author doesn't want to make the blame of this calamity on the other people and their gods about their unfaithfulness. The author is clearly starting by saying that the whole point of this is that Jonah, who is supposed to be serving the one what catchy word, but the one true God, the God, the one that Jonah is supposed to know, the one who received a word, who's supposed to know God, this this one that Jonah is supposed to know, they don't want to make the others responsible. They want to make Jonah responsible for the problem, for the problems that they're all experiencing. And so they, instead of saying, all right, Jonah, you're in deep trouble. We're going to fix this. They say, Jonah, what do you think we should do? And it's Jonah's suggestion that he says, 
Pick me up, throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So what do you think the soldiers did, the sailors did, excuse me? Do you think they just immediately picked him up and threw him in the sea? They didn't. They still, it says, instead, the sailors did their best to row back to dry land. They didn't want to throw Jonah into the sea. They were trying to still show compassion and empathy towards Jonah, even though it's all his fault they're in this mess. But they still don't want to be the ones that are blamed for the bloodshed and for the death. But when they couldn't do it, the sea grew even crazier. They uh, they cried out to Hashem, to the, the great I Am. God, do not let us die for taking this man's life. They, they're saying, don't, don't punish us for what's happened here. And don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And so it says, then they took Jonah and they threw Jonah overboard. And it said that the raging sea grew calm. And all the sailors were greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made a vow to him. So it, in the end, all of these sailors were in some way came to follow Hashem, the, the name. I'm sorry, Hashem is a big Hebrew word that instead of using the name of God as pronounced in Exodus, where God calls God's self, I am, um, they often call God the name. And so uh, I use that instead of, we can, we, we can stand with boldness and say the name of God, but sometimes just out of respect, I don't. Um, not because I'm afraid of anything, but especially out of respect for Hebrew people. Um, that is why I'm saying Hashem or the Lord or... Uh, or the uh, great I am. So that's what I mean. The great I am is the name that God gives and says, I am who I am. Anyway, just a little aside. So all of these people end up worshiping I am. And now comes the big thing that everybody wants to argue about. It says the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And from inside the fish, Jonah it says prayed to the Lord his God, but it really comes across as a song, as a psalm, as a poem. Um, now, it's an interesting poem here. It probably did not, well, almost certainly, if we we're to believe that this is a myth, a story that's t trying to tell us a greater truth, that this story is, um, brings in um, uh, this song that doesn't always make a lot of sense. In, in fact, you'll see by the end of the song that it probably was something sung in a temple, not in the belly of a whale. Um, but, the, but the song that Jonah sings sounds like this. In my distress, in my pain, I called out to the Lord and God answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. Notice that he, he, he puts uh, God as the subject of his reasoning to be in the water. Anyway, and the current swirled about me and all your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight and I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. So it's talking about mountains now, not sea. And the earth beneath barred me in forever. So it's really about being, it really is about being buried. 
But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation, wholeness, coming together, bringing all things towards possibility of life comes from the Lord. And so it's this beautiful poem, uh, probably pulled up from a a temple song, uh, a psalm sung in temple worship about being laid low, being buried, being sunk down deep, and crying out from those dark places and being lifted up out of the pee. Out of the out of the pit, I did. I just just, just sounded like I said pee. That's really funny. Uh, pit. <laughs> anyway, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, and my prayer rose to you. It's so funny because this is the same one who is running away from the Lord and is now making vows and praising and celebrating and crying out to God for help. I think this is a song that would have been sung in the teaching of this myth that everybody would have recognized. But again, it goes back to that great mythos about God and the great story that we talked about in the long last paragraph, that God's story is all about death and resurrection, that the flow of the entire universe, that we are created for goodness, but in our wounds, we've been hurt and harmed and we're called to die to those things so that we can rise in Christ to new life, rise in the Christ conscience to new life, the Christ consciousness to new life, to put away the old things so that we could live for the new things. This song gets to all of that, that when we were buried, our head wrapped up, we cry out, and God reminds us that out of death we have life. So. So I believe this is a great little uh, psalm that is sung. Uh, Jesus talks about this song when, when they ask Jesus who he is. He says, all you need to do is look at Jonah and you'll understand me. That's from Matthew 12, 39 and 40. So look at that story and you'll get my story. So the whole sense of the one who is buried, the one who is sent to depths, uh, the one who is um, sent deep down inside and then rises to new life. That is the one. So I'm going to take a little break here, and we're going to go to part two of Jonah, which is chapter three and four, and we're going to learn a little bit about what God thinks about the Assyrians.
That is Chris Freeman's song, Soft Like Fire, from his City of God album. You can find that on Amazon, and you can download it by MP3, or you can find it uh, in your Spotify. So let's talk about the second part of the story of Jonah here. Now, it says the Lord commands the fish, and it vomits Jonah onto dry land. Um, And so... uh, Happily, Jonah is back. Um, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of hand-wringing about, uh, you know, was Jonah swallowed by a fish? Was Jonah not swallowed by a fish? Was this historical? Was it not historical? And I, th- I think the point of the whole question of the fish is that if all of your focus is on the historicity of being swallowed by a fish and gurgitating it up and whether it's possible, whether it's not, what's scientific, what's not, I think you're missing the whole point of the story that our job is not to focus on history, but to read the story as to what it is trying to tell us and what is it that we're supposed to be hearing about this story that is supposed to be teaching us about the divine movement of the universe. In here, just if we look at the first part, this first part of the story, it's it's this disobedient whiner who's told to do something, who runs the other direction. He ends up in a boat full of people that we would call outsiders and heathens and infidels. Infidel, a big word meaning not faithful. And uh, they show more faith and grace and hope than Jonah does. And uh, Jonah is tossed overboard, where then there's this huge picture of death and life, about life swallowing him up and bringing him down to the depths of the earth. There are other uh, mythologies around the world about being born out of fish, that fish in some mythologies represented the womb. And so um, in other mythologies that happens there, so this might be a borrowed image of that fish about death and rebirth. Um or just the whole sense of the fear and chaos of what is in the deep and and playing off the story of being thrown overboard and swallowed up by the very thing you would fear the most, the great Leviathan, the great fish, which b- drags Jonah down into the depths. But it's there in the depths. It's at Jonah's lowest, when, when things seem their worst, that he renews and rediscovers uh, a, a trust in the divine plan for rebirth that it's like and then I remembered this is how you work when things are at their worst there is a chance for life and rebirth I have so many friends who have gone through recovery who talk about hitting bottom and the moment of clarity that happens when they recognize that everything needs to change I, I, I know people who have felt at their worst moment that it's then that everything changed. I know in my own life and when I was at my worst, deepest depression um, after my sophomore year of college where I had to post post-its all over my house saying, you can do it, you can get up, you can make it, you can get better, you can get happier. I, I had to commit to the divine plan that my depression and my pain were not the end of the story, but there was another story where something else wins and it's not depression. It's not addiction. It's 
life and that's going to win that is i think more important than the historicity if you want to get wound up in knots about whether or not it's historical you go for it. you you do you boo i'm just saying it is not the most important thing of the story as to prove that as whether or not that happened the most important thing is that you hear the message of the story and that is uh first that there is a divine plan that brings life um, that the everything we see in the universe is a circulation of life becoming death and becoming life again and that um, Jonah even in his infidelity um, he has that moment to reclaim that story for his own and then also that those for whom we would call outsiders sometimes they're the ones who get it better than the insiders and we're going to see more on that last topic here as we talk about Nineveh. So chapter three begins, and so the word came to Jonah a second time. So that's what I'd like to remind you. And so the exact, so that we're right back to square A. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And so this time it says Jonah obeyed and uh, went to this Nineveh, the big capital city of Assyria. Now, um, this is really funny. You have to catch this. It says, now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going one day. <laughs> he didn't even make it across the city. He walked one day in. And then Jonah gives the worst sermon in the history of sermons. Um, in, in English, it says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I think from what I heard, like that's, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight words in English. From what I understand in Greek, it's like five words. And in Hebrew, it's like three words or four words. It's sort of like 40 days, Nineveh gone, something like that. That's his whole sermon. Talk about the worst prophet ever. He walked, here's the city, three days across. Jonah walks one day and goes, 40 days, y'all are going to be gone. And then he turns around and walks back out. It says, uh, but then it's, what it says is the Ninevites believed God. And a fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. The sackcloth, uh, an itchy fabric that makes you unhappy to remind you of your grief. And here's what happens. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Sitting in the dust was um, uh, ancient Mideastern tradition of grieving, is to sit in the dust or the ashes, and to cover yourself in ashes, to say that you don't even have time to clean yourself, you're in so much grief. And this is the pro proclamation he issued from Nineveh, which is also great and hilarious. You'll love this. By the decree of the king and... And uh, his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything so fast. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. I love that picture that like even all the little dogs and cats and mice and donkeys and rats and camels and all the animals, they all have to put on sackcloth as well. Isn't that hilarious? And let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And then the question, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from the fierce anger so that we will not perish. So even the king of Nineveh hears this 
and repents, turns around, faces a new direction, and says, do everything you can. Apologize. Turn away from violence. The Assyrians, this is the baddest of the bad. These are the worst of the worst. These are the, the, the terrible people. And yet, even they hear the message of God, and they're relent. And it says next, God saw what they did and how they turned and did not bring on them destruction. Now, you would think that Joan would be like, man, I got this. I'm sort of all-star prophet. I can, with the world's worst sermon, convert the worst people on earth towards joy and love and life. But here's what it says in chapter 4, the last chapter. It says, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> the very thing that he went to go do happened. And he's like, well, that's not right. That sucks. Uh, he, he, he got angry, it says. He was mad that God relented and did not bring destruction on the Assyrians. And so he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. So what was he trying to keep from happening? Jonah says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in unconditional love, chesed, a God who relents from sending calamity. I mean, the whole reason why Jonah didn't want to do this is because Jonah knew that God was forgiving and loving and kind and will relent and will show mercy and favor. And the problem is even to the Assyrians, even to the worst of the worst. It's, it's like God, or Jonah, I should say, it's like Jonah knew God too well to accept that God might love even them. I think the story of Jonah here is powerful. I think for us, we spend so much time heaping judgment and condemnation on other people and other traditions or faiths or non-faiths or genders or uh, sexualities, and, and, we, and we want to know that God will not love and forgive them. And here, here we see that Jonah knew God too well, that God was slow to anger, abounding in unconditional love, relents and shows mercy. That, that this God is a God of great compassion. And I know people who get mad when you preach a message of God's great grace. They want God to be judgmental and angry and powerful. Why? Because I think they want to use God to justify their own anger, their own judgment, their own condemnation of other people. And they're not willing themselves to be gracious. And so it, it would be to their own condemnation if God was gracious. And so they would rather God not be God and instead be a deity that punishes the angry people rather than the divine flow of love and justice and mercy and compassion in the universe. I know a lot of Jonas and I've seen that Jonah in me. I've seen me in my worst, most self-righteous, wanting the worst for somebody else when when I know that God would ask for something completely different. I, I think the point here 
is not about Jonah being swallowed by a whale. I think the point is, you know, you know what it is to live in the divine love of the universe. The divine love that shows you compassion and mercy. That brings you up out of the pit. That brings you up from the belly of death and spits you back out on dry land to be resurrected, to live a new life. And how dare you not want that for something else? To bring that home even further, the mythos goes a little bit further. It says, now Lord, if, so, so Jonah in the end says, now Lord, take away my life for it is better me, for me to die than live. So he would rather die than to see the Assyrians love and, and forgiven. Do you know people like that? I do, and I've seen that in me as well. But the Lord replied, and this is, this is God's question. Is it right for you to be angry? I love that in this picture of God, that God just doesn't command and preach, that God helps us and leads us to our own answers. And so the first question is, is it okay, Jonah, for you to be angry? Now comes this little kind of parable within a parable. It says, Jonah had gone out and sat at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. And then it says, the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for the head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wanted to die and said it would be better for me to die than to live. So there's this lovely little story about Jonah's own discomfort. So first of all, he goes east of the city and waits and says, well, maybe God's going to change. Maybe it'll still happen. Maybe. So he's still dwelling in his own judgment and condemnation. He's not learned from God to, to be like God, to, to follow in the God's footsteps, to, to go in the way of God. He still wants to see judgment and condemnation. And so God just sends a leafy plant, something just to provide him a little comfort. And But the next morning, a worm chews it away, blasting heat and sun. And so Jonah is all uncomfortable and, and says, Ah, oh, I just wish I was dead. So God, he's wishing for his own death. But God comes back with a question and says to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah following into the trap says it is and i'm so angry i wish i were dead but the lord said you've been worried about a plant though you did not tend it or make it you had nothing to do with it and it sprang up every night overnight and it died overnight and should i not have concern for the great city of nineveh for which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. So the whole story ends on a question. You were concerned for a plant. Why wouldn't I be concerned for 120,000 people? For the livelihood and goodness of the people and all their animals. Why? Here's the question. Why are you more compassionate about a plant and why do you not see that I would be compassionate towards these people? 
I had a question come up or uh, heard about a conversation about whether or not we should pray for Vladimir Putin. Now, the question kind of proposes two things. First of all, it proposes what prayer is, in that prayer is always then praise for something. So prayer, and by this measure, is should we pray for Vladimir Putin, meaning should we pray for his livelihood and for his health and for goodness and for blessing? And so should we pray for this? The other thing that it kind of presupposes is that you shouldn't pray for it because you know, then, then it would happen, and if you don't, then it won't happen. Well, we know that regardless of our prayer, rain falls on the good and the broken, and both at the same time in me. The idea was then, how the question I think is better to say, what, what does God think of Vladimir Putin, this kleptocrat, this dictator who is reaching out with a giant violent land grab and killing people just to possess and colonize and imperialize another country, even one he claims is already a part of him. They wouldn't fight him if that were true. Do we pray? Do we pray? I think the question is, does God have compassion for the Ninevites and care for their lives and livelihoods? I think our answer to God's question is yes, that God does care for even the Assyrians. And so can we not also care and have compassion for Russians and Ukrainians for even having pity on Putin? This doesn't mean that we wish him blessing in life and that he would be blessed in his endeavors, but I do believe that we pray in the same way that Jonah cried out that they would end their evil ways, end the violence, end the hatred, end the land grab, end the imperialism and colonialism, end this horror that we would pray for Putin, that his heart would be torn in two like the king of Assyria's would. We would pray that he would see the violence and error of his ways and that he would call on his entire country to fast and to put on sackcloth and to repent, and to change their minds, and to think in new ways, to don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, conformed to the patterns of violence, and the patterns of, of power, but instead be renewed in his mind to think in a new way. Do we pray for Putin? Of course we do. We pray for him to change today. God, I pray in this moment that he would see your will for righteousness and justice to be done, that he would turn around, that he would repent. And I don't just do this because I hate Putin. I'm tempted to. I'm tempted to be very angry. I'm tempted to demonize because it's easier to, to hate and judge someone if we make them less than human, if we make them into demon. But Putin is a broken human just like me. A broken human who needs love and compassion and care, just like me. Someone who needs to see in a new way, just like me. And if I'm going to ask for God to come alongside me, to share divine love upon me, to forgive me and to help me see in new ways, I, 
I need to share that same kind of compassion for somebody like Vladimir Putin. That, I think, is the story of Jonah. I don't think it's an historical story. I, that's my opinion. Maybe it was. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. But I, the point is, I don't really care whether it's historical. It's still true. It tells us something true about us, about the universe, about how God works, lives, and breathes, and what we're called to do with that. So if you hear Jonah and immediately you just start getting the wiggles, maybe start thinking a little more creatively and look deeper into the message and meaning, the mythos of this story. And maybe there you're going to find something really beautiful at the center, that we have a divine purpose that is bent towards great compassion, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, who relents and shows mercy and kindness to all, even the Assyrians. Thanks for listening to the Good Courage Podcast. I'm Jay Gamlin. Our theme music was brought to you by Matt Fagan, who wrote, When You Go, for my sweet sister, because they love each other oh so much. You can reach me at thehouseofgoodcourage at gmail.com. Our special music was Chris Freeman and the City of God album. And as always, please like and share this with people who might want to hear things in a new way. Good courage. I wish you'd never